Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. A kick-ass career. I'm really hoping to get one of those one day. Maybe Dr. Ben Hamer can help me work out what that is. He is one of Australia's leading work futurists. He studied at the Institute of the Future. He's an adjunct fellow at Swinburne University Centre for the New Workforce. He's worked at the World Economic Forum. He's been a visiting scholar at Yale. He's been on the board of the Australian HR Institute. He's young, he's good looking, he's vibrant. He's making me feel really, really inadequate right now. I can't wait to talk to the future work lead from PwC, this absolute game changer in the way we think about the world of work. I'm excited, I can't wait, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers, and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again today. How is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you? Oh, look, mate, we are very excited today. Can I tell you why we're excited, Adriano? I don't know. Tell me, Phil. Well, you know the Spanish festival on, on Johnson Street? Yes. Well, down the other end of Johnson Street, we've decided to put together the Australian Pizza Festival. Right, here we go. All Get ready, Ben. Pineapple. There's some pineapple all on pizza. All things pineapple, Adriana. And do you know what? We've engineered it that you are going to be the patron of pineapple. <laughs> right, that's great. Uh, it's an affront to every Italian listening uh, that you put pineapple on a pizza. What a ridiculous proposition. Hopefully, none of that is going to be part of the future world of work. Anyway, I'm really excited about our guest. I've been fanboying him for quite some time now on, on LinkedIn. Sorry, mate, for all the all the uh, all the, uh, the the likes and comments along the journey. But it's uh, it's been a real insight into the shifting nature of the world of work. Ben, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask our very uh, our, all of our game changer guests, I should say, from the very top of the show, and that is, tell us a little bit about your story and where you've gotten to today. Okay, well, I think the, the first thing to, to point out is that I don't put pineapple on a pizza. That's um, ghastly. That's ghastly. You're welcome, you're wel- you're welcome to now. stay, Ben. Look, no judgment, but but not my <laughs> cup of tea. Um, so a little bit about me. I am originally from Perth, so uh, did all my high school and uh, initial university education over there. Um, studied marketing, never really worked in it. Um, and uh, I mean, Phil's kind of given a bit of the bio, but um, going through a range of different experiences, predominantly working in the public sector until I found my way into consulting. Um, so 
future of work, what is it, what do I do? Um, it kind of looks at the intersection of everything from the kind of people we need in organisations in the future in terms of uh, the skills that they need, um, you know, advocating and championing things like organisational diversity um, right through to how work gets done. So bringing in that automation agenda and how that intersects with everything human. Um, where work gets done, which is a really topical one at the moment around um, different places and spaces and the home and the office. Um, and then what the experience of work looks like right in the middle of all of that. Um, and so helping organisations uh, and policymakers navigate that changing world of work and how do we better prepare for it. When you say you help people navigate this, what does that translate to on a daily basis? That's like saying what is consulting, which is the most ambiguous profession you could possibly have. Exactly. So as one consultant speaking to another, help us to understand what it is that you do on a daily basis to help people to navigate these tricky waters. Yeah, so I kind of look at it at three different levels. So looking at it at the what I call the macro level, which is the looking at the labour market, looking at organisations and looking at individuals. So as far as labour markets are concerned, um, supporting government policymakers um, and those in that kind of sphere to better understand what are the changes that we're seeing and expecting to see within industries, within the world of work, and then how do you translate that into, from an education perspective, for example, how the curriculum might need to evolve and how we might need to see shifts in the way that we teach in order to achieve those graduate outcomes into the future um, where government should be investing money around supporting high growth or high priority industries um, and then how do they actually play a role in supporting a reskilling and upskilling agenda. So that's kind of that advisory work at that top end. Um, as far as organisations go, it's very much around helping them deliver, uh, develop and deliver three to five year strategies. So a lot of organisations are really focused on the here and now, um, but how do you step up out of the weeds? How do you try and sense and understand the disruption that's facing them and then come up with really pragmatic solutions, whether it is around, for example, um, doing a digital leadership program for their top level leaders um, or whether or not it's something around um, developing a strategic workforce plan that highlights how their workforce profile, the size, the shape, the skills need to shift over time. Um, and then the third level I spoke about was the individual. So that's very much about, well, what are all these changes that are happening out there? Distilling that down to me in 2022 um, as a, you know, if I'm a high school student, for example, what does that actually mean for me, my career and the choices that I, that I make now? So being able to, to really bring it into a, a heavily personalised perspective um, and that's kind of to your point around the book, The Kick-Ass Career, that's very much around how do you try and um, uh, navigate and guide your way through all of those trends as an individual trying to make sense of the world. Okay, so it's a nice segue there because you, you mentioned the word choices and, and young people and their career choices. So I want to come back to something that you said at the very top of uh, your response to my question. And that was around a choice that you made, a young man from Perth entering in the space of marketing, you abandon that particular space and then you, you, move, you migrate to somewhere else. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what was some of the thinking that was going on about why you initially were attracted to the world of marketing and why that wasn't serving you well? Yeah, good question. Um, and I wouldn't say that it wasn't serving me well. It sure. was it was just a, a whole range of circumstances. What wasn't serving me well was law. 
So um, when I was going through high school, um, I was always set on being a lawyer. So the person who stood up in a courtroom and, you know, a bit of an attention seeker, everyone's staring at them, they're delivering the dramatic monologue. Um, that was always the aspiration for me. Um, and I look back at my time in high school and um, I was extremely naive and stubborn because I uh, remember I went to my career counselling session. We had to have like a mandatory count career counselling um, appointment. I literally walked in and said, I don't need this. I know I'm going to be a lawyer. Enough said. And then uh, following that, um, he sent me on my way and, and, and didn't want to pursue the conversation any further. So, um, you know, I, I'd always kind of been very fixated on that. Um, I went to university. I did one semester of law. Um, I uh, ended up getting depression. I ended up uh, with chronic fatigue syndrome as an 18-year-old because I was flogging myself for something that gave me no purpose, no passion, and realised that something I'd put so much energy into for such a long time um, didn't actually pay off and had this sort of weird um, existential crisis as an 18-year-old, which I think is a little bit silly in hindsight, but felt very real at the time. Um, and so luckily when I was at university, um, I did one elective, which was in marketing um, while I was doing law and really enjoyed it. I liked that it was a little bit more creative um, than sitting in a law library, pouring over case notes. Um, and so decided just on a whim to go, well, look, rather than what doing what I think I should do, I'll do something that I find really interesting and is intellectually stimulating and, and, and do what makes me happy. Um, so studied marketing, um, really loved it, did really well at it. Um, and then uh, it was, I applied for a whole range of grad jobs when I finished university. Many of those were in marketing. A couple of those weren't. They were in management consulting and, and a couple of other areas. Um, and it was just that I got a job in consulting. It was with a good firm. It looked good on the CV. So um, I wasn't overly set on marketing. Um, I wanted something more so where I was always going to be able to learn and, and develop and continue to be intellectually stimulated. So rather than taking a very fixated career path around marketing, I sort of just pursued that curiosity. So um, listening to you talk there, Ben, I'm, 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 look, I'm another refugee from a law faculty. Um, I actually finished my degree because I didn't have the insight um, that you had. I have two questions for you. First of all, what were the TV series that helped you form your view of what a lawyer was? Mine was Rumpole, but that's because I'm a lot older than you are. So that's my first question. What, what shaped your view about um, what in, in the media? What shaped your view about what a lawyer was? Look, a, a lot of um, uh, movies, but then also like your, your Law and Orders and, and all of those. Um, I mean, it was almost like I remember it was a Thursday night. I don't know if this is just a Perth thing, but Thursday night, no matter what channel you flicked onto at 7.30 or 8.30 at night, every channel had some kind of law and order spin-off show. So I think just continually seeing and, and being stimulated by those kind of um, uh, productions and a lot of movies at the time were coming out um, around, you know, court cases and, and the Jerry Maguire kind of um, equivalents. I just always figured that that's what law was and therefore gravitated to it. And it sure ain't that. Is it, is, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, I mean, we need lawyers. We need good lawyers. Now society needs the law um, very much so. And look around the world right now and we can see ample reasons for that but we, we have this we have this illusion around what that particular piece of the world of work might be and then there's the reality of it we encourage children to dream 
when they're young. We encourage them to paint a world of possibility. And it's important to do that because if you don't, then they stay in the world of children forever, you know, and, you know, you ask, you know, 13-year-old or 14-year-old what they want to do. And it's usually something that's very closely connected to whatever is their mode of entertainment or sport or, or so on and so on. You've got to do something to help them get out of that. At some point, we go through the wasteland, like you did, like I did, like Adriana, like most of us do, when we suddenly realise that life isn't about dreams, it's about reality. And then we connect in with purpose. You say that helping people find their purpose in their career is a big part about what your own purpose is about. At what point did the light switch on for you and the dreaming stopped and you realised that it was about helping people to find their purpose? Yeah, so I think there are two things in that. So if I, I start about when I the light kind of changed for me away from, you know, the dream, I guess, um, cause there was a bit of a time lag between them, you know, really coming to, to clarity on what my purpose actually is. So, um, when I, to that point around was doing law and then realized it wasn't for me, um, I think there are a, a range of other considerations. It's probably worth flagging. And, and so being very transparent, um, I was going through my own sexual identity, sexuality, identity crisis. Um, and one of the reasons I realized why I wanted to, and was attracted to law was because I am sorry if this is like getting too deep, but, um, I I essentially had, was growing up feeling like I was flawed, um, because I was different. I didn't know what that difference was, but that difference didn't feel good and didn't feel accepted. Um, and when I saw those lawyers on TV, they were always viewed as successful. They were always, um, they always had status. They were always viewed as smart, intellectual, um, of a certain rank and tier in society. And so I thought, well, while I had these feelings of feeling flawed, if I was a lawyer, no one could question my worth and my value because lawyers are, are one of those roles in society. And so that's essentially when I kind of then started going through that exploration of sexuality and coming to terms with what was happening that was happening at the same time as when I said hang on law's not actually for me so Mm. I think there was that point was quite pivotal being able to have that mindset shift around really getting under the covers of at a very deep and intrinsic level around why I wanted to do something and so I think that's that's really important when we're talking to um, you know, younger adults as they're exploring what their options are, um, really trying to unpack the why beyond a more superficial level. Um, and then it was more so um, sort of then maybe five or so years after that, um, I'd kind of transitioned into consulting, did, uh, you know, workforce planning, workforce strategy, working in HR type roles. And through having those that interface with people um, and found I was naturally drawn to Um, wanting to understand what made them tick, what made them, what gave them drive. um, And then kind of just organically that purpose around wanting to help people within their career um, kind of hit home for me. And I spoke a lot to organizations around what all these trends were. Um, But then a lot of people said, yeah, that's all great. But what does that actually mean for me? And so that's why I I kind of felt like I could really add some value and and where there was a gap that, that I could fill. Um, ben, first of all, thank you very much for sharing uh, in the, a very personal aspect of your own journey. It's fascinating that every time that we encounter a, a, an individual on this particular platform, uh, people who are really accomplished in their space always share with us aspects that start with a deep sense of belonging. Uh, and, and we often in schools ask young people to simply step up all the time. Yet 
what we should be really helping them do is because all they really want to do is fit in, right? But we, 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 we kind of skip that bit <laughs> and get them to go to this stepping up, stepping up, stepping up, you know, being simply better than they were yesterday. But part of that, part of that narrative has got to be about uh, creating space and time for them to step into who they are and be comfortable with that. When you had that conversation with that careers practitioner or careers advisor, whatever it was called there in Perth, and you went in there with uh, all the answers, I get, I get a sense that maybe they then just tick the box going, yeah, well, I've spoken to Ben, he's fine, off he goes. What did you need though, really at that point, now that you've had time to reflect upon this journey to where you are now? Yeah, it, it's it's a hard one because um, what I need, I probably wouldn't have, have been in a position to actually hear and receive it properly okay. because I was so set. Um, I think looking back on it, you know, the, I wouldn't be surprised if the career counsellor just saw me as someone who came in the door and said, this guy knows what he wants. That's mm. amazing. That's awesome. Good luck to him. Um, and because, you know, it was the compulsory session, it was an easy tick off the list. But I probably was viewed as someone who was really driven and knew what they were after. I think it's it's to that point around trying to unpack beyond any sort of superficial reasoning as to why someone wants to do what they want to do. Um, and particularly when it comes to teenagers and those in high school, I think we need to remember that, um, uh, they, and back then myself, have a very limited view around what's available out there in the world. And it's influenced by either their immediate um, environment, so what their parents and their parents' friends do for work, and what the media, what's portrayed in the media. Beyond that, they don't really have a thorough understanding of, of what is out there and all of the different opportunities. Now, on one hand, I say you're going to be working for 50 plus years, so nor should you have a thorough understanding. But I think just being able to really unpack um, from the individual what it is that drives them, what makes them happy, what stimulates them, broaden their perspective around what else is out there and, and kind of just play that constructive challenge rather than accepting that whatever they tell you, it's only going to be quite one small wedge of what's, what's out there rather than just accepting it and trying to let them work within that, that boundary that they've been given. So broadening their horizons, trying to get beyond that superficial reasoning um, and, and trying to link what makes them drive to, to their career. The other thing I think is really important, um, maybe not necessarily for me, but for sort of my view on the schooling system at the moment, we automatically think people need to go to university. And I think a much broader appreciation of what is out there beyond tertiary education um, and, and trying to not just fit an individual to a course, but try and align someone's passions with a broader profession. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, help, helping young people to really kind of explore their own why, uh, you know, uh, is an important first step. Um, because as you beautifully illustrated, there's so much else going on in the lives of young people uh, in, in terms of their, their, their psychological growth, their biological growth and so on. So there's so much to, to consider. So I want to just take this conversation a little bit further than in what you've just shared with our audience. And that is that we're very aware that you're the current lead you know, about the future of work there at, um, or the future work market, I should say, at PwC Australia, which kind of brings together this intersection of work type, um, workforce, workplaces, and, and the experience of work. How can we then best support young people to become future fit and stay relevant and competitive in this future of work? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things on that one. So one is to give uh, students a real sense of agency, 
Um, I think that, you know, we, if I think about my own experience as well, going through schooling, um, it, it, you almost get spoon fed as you're going through uh, the system. And then there's a bit of a shock when you go to university and you realize that no one cares if you don't hand an assignment in on time, you're just going to fail. Um, so I think there's a, there's something around how do you try and develop that sense of agency as you're moving through the system? Because when you go into the workplace, um, there again is this expectation that, well, my employer is responsible for my learning and development and for my upskilling and reskilling. When at the moment, what we're seeing is that individuals in the workplace need to spend 15% of their week, every single week, upskilling and reskilling just to remain current. And your organization is not going to play that role for you. So individuals need to, to really be around self-directed learning. Um, they need to very much um, be empowered to drive their own learning gen agenda and, and make sure that they're focused around continuous and ongoing learning as well. So a colleague of mine often talks about learning um, in the workplaces as being like a gym. You can go once for one day a year on a course, you're not going to be fit. But if you go a couple of times a week or every day a week for the, for a year, you're going to be extremely fit. So how do you try and think about that in terms of learning? And how does that start um, right back to when we're in schools? I think that's really important from, from sort of that um, student perspective. And then as far as teachers and curriculums concerned, the main thing that I often talk about is it's not what we teach, it's how we teach. Because my view is that as more and more gets automated in the, the workforce, in the world of work, when we look at how we're teaching kids, particularly when a lot of it is around rote learning, we're teaching them how to be robots because robots are able to do rote learning. Robots are able to do anything that's processed, task-oriented, that's kind of follows a certain set of rules. So rather than teaching kids or students how to, to, to rote learn and how to memorise something and recite it back in a test, we have to, to think about how we teach and how we then elicit some of those skills around teamwork, critical thinking, problem solving, um, judgment, because they're the skills that are increasingly valuable in the future of work. But that starts right back in, in primary and secondary schooling. So, Ben, what I'm hearing you talk about correlates very much with the research that we've been doing at A School for Tomorrow and through Game Changers as well, too, which is about voice agency and advocacy of students. Now, if we want to talk about the theory behind it, there's mastery learning, there's self-determination theory, there's all sorts of things that are going on around it but primarily the difference that we're seeing is that for every child sitting in the middle is no longer enough recycling received content is no longer enough it's about creating a space for yourself and a pathway for yourself it's about becoming the best version of yourself it's about enabling school to be for every student a rehearsal for an adulthood, which is going to expect of them very different things from what it might have expected, certainly from my generation and my parents' generation. I want to ask you something which is, I think, perhaps a little controversial around this. So, Adriano, if I step off into the wrong territory here, pull me back, Amico, pull me back. I reckon that the type of self-determination that you're talking about in professional learning, too many of our teachers don't share that attitude with respect to their own learning and that they're caught in the industrial model of training, which is that my workplace will provide for me automatically all of the training I need to adjust. And it should do that. Whereas what you're suggesting to us is that we need to be curating our own learning and ensuring that we ourselves are future ready and future fit. How can we help the school system prepare students to be future ready and future fit with 
mastery and self-determination, all that sort of thing, when we've got a workforce that's still caught in the old paradigm? Wow, that's a curly question. Um, look, I, I think that teaching is, I have so much value and respect for, for teachers and the roles that they do. I also think they're in a really difficult environment um, at the moment because, you know, while we can say that teachers, particularly more tenured teachers um, who have a really set style and, and um, way in which they like to teach and, and go about their work in the classroom, um, I, I still feel like the environment doesn't enable that for them. And I think that there's still something at a more higher systems level that needs to change in order to provide the environment where those teachers can better engage in continuous and self-directed learning. Because, you know, I have quite a few friends who are teachers and they often tell me that there's the expectation that um, they implement a uh, new technology in the classroom or um, they have to reform some kind of way in which they teach or there's a new curriculum that gets implemented and they don't necessarily get the time to to appropriately upskill, reskill, and be in a position where they can then implement that. But then again, it is always focused on a new delivery method or um, a new technology rather than giving them the freedom to say, what actually is it that you as a human, as a teacher, as a person want to, to upskill and reskill and learn and develop? And so giving them the freedom not to just go, there's a new process, learn it. Um, we've got a PD day, go on it actually giving a little bit more flexibility around what learning looks like for them, giving them the capacity to actually have the time to be able to engage in that. I think that's really important within this conversation because I just personally don't see it, particularly with this focus on, um, you know, NAPLAN scores and everything else that comes with it, which I believe just encourages rote learning. Okay, terrific answer, Ben, and very elegantly and sensitively put. Um, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is that, our, is that our workforce is caught in a paradigm. To shift them to the paradigm, let's get practical around this. If you're saying that we need 15% of our time to be reskilling ourselves, that's a substantial cost that the system should bear. Teachers all around Australia right now, teachers all around the world, are telling us that they don't have the time to do this. Now, I know that teachers always say that they don't have the time to do this, but this is serious. We are restructuring expectations for a workforce. We're not giving them the time that they need. We're asking them to do more and more and more. And they're telling us enough is enough. Okay. So this is consultants speaking with each other here, talking about effectively structural change within the system to support the individuals within it to themselves ensure that they are of the right mindset and of the right skill set and of the right capabilities um, to do that. How can we help the system make these adjustments? Our friend, Pazi Salberg, former guest on Game Changers, is firmly of the belief that we spend too much time in the classroom with kids, that we structure their time too much. Do you think it's a reasonable expectation that we spend less time in the classroom and more focused time in the classroom and allow more time of a traditional workday to be spent by teachers doing that exploring, doing that playing, doing that upskilling? In other words, teach less to learn more. Mm. Look, so I'll caveat this by saying I'm, I'm not the education expert, right? But I think 
from hearing what you're saying, it definitely sounds like it's a, a feasible way to go about it. I'm a very big believer you can't help others unless you help yourself. Um, and to me, you know, if we could allow more focus time for students in the classroom, be a little bit more deliberate around it, um, while providing teachers that opportunity to really engage in their own upskilling and reskilling, and again, not being prescriptive around what that looks like, um, I think that that becomes really important. Um, what that does mean, though, is a shift in how we view the education model, which has served us in its current form for however many tens and or hundreds of years. Um, it's the same as healthcare and why healthcare is also really quite slow to reform as well, um, because this is what a nurse does, this is what a doctor does, and therefore this is how a ward operates in a hospital. Similar thing with how we have teachers year coordinators, principals, and this is how it works. We might need to think about the creation of a new kind of role. So if the, the teacher has their focus time, well, then what happens with, with the students and therefore what kind of new roles emerge or what kind of delivery models emerge as a result of that? You know, we've seen countless reports, Gonski, whatever else it might be, that are trying to nudge in this direction. Um, but what it fundamentally requires us to do is rethink the model of education delivery. Um, and I think that is a real threat when there's such a pressure on um, standards and scores and student outcomes. And I think that's the other thing to kind of flag is that, you know, when we say student outcomes, I think people interpret that as, um, needing to just give more and more and more to the student. But I think what I like with what you said, Phil, is maybe we actually need to step back a little bit in order to give them more. It's not just about giving them more time, more FaceTime, more um, uh, whatever else it might be. This is a really interesting conversation um, that that we're, we're having today because so much of it resonates deeply with me, Ben, around what we have been advocating for at A School for Tomorrow for quite some time. And I have, you know, and Phil has throughout most of our careers and that is it's it's long overdue for a new social contract of of schooling and, and and society right that's what we're advocating for here right now so much of your work uh in the world of work in the future of work and the space that you continue to present in is also not only presenting to them the trends that are that are that are happening right now but also predicting trends going forward so so businesses can, can remain sustainable and continue to develop their workforce and the, you know, their human capital. One of the things uh, that we have witnessed, particularly in the last two and a half years during the pandemic in a educational schooling context is that without technology, schools will make themselves irrelevant. And, and that's a pretty confronting statement because I, I can already hear so many educators out there going, but what about us? What about us? You know, I'm not suggesting for one minute that, uh, one is is replacing the other but you're seeing of course industry after industry where where people have to be reskilled because as you said earlier automation machine learning artificial intelligence all these things are changing the game of the world of work in, in a really profound way and even the way we live in society i almost feel that we have a responsibility in education to lay foundations for innovation and growth for this tomorrow which I keep telling everyone he's already here, but us in education are obviously a little bit late. And I'm talking really fundamentally about the interdependence between the, the technical, the human, and the digital skills that are really kind of crucial to this, to this realisation. How do you think we can best support schools through a change process that supports the daily operation while attending to the notion of preparing young people to be future ready? No small questions for you today, yeah. by the way, Ben. 
<laughs> wow. Um, very different questions what I normally get asked. So um, I'm kind of stumped. Um, so how do we better prepare students for that intersection you're saying of, of, of digital, of um, sort of the future world of work within the current constraints of the system as it is now? I suppose the question is, is, is probably less about the, the preparation of the young people because that's a given, right? We need to be doing that. Mm. It's probably more about how we can best support schools through this change process who ultimately will be then supporting these young people because this is about a, an evolution of a, of a, of a model and how do we support them through that change process effectively so then they can support young people to be future ready? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is just um, being more outward focused rather than inward focused. I, and I see this with a lot of organisations and I don't think schools are any different where we get so focused on um, the, the sort of delivering the curriculum for our students that we can sometimes lose sight of why we're actually doing it and then the world that they're going into. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do where I'm talking about the future of work, um, a lot of teachers have never actually engaged or had the opportunity to engage in that. And so I think it's really important to, to keep that end goal in mind. We're not um, educating students to um, get a particular HSC score or the equivalent. We're educating students to make meaningful contributions to society and building well-rounded citizens, whatever that might look like in whatever evolution into the future. So I think that there's something around that. I think that there's something around a shift in mindset to uh, curate um, a learning experience that is around passion and purpose and and trying to focus on what makes people happy. So getting, um, you know, what one thing that I often say is, is that in the future world of work, people are going to have a minimum of 20 different jobs, five different careers. The, you know, case in point for me, the the university degree or the TAFE qualification or your first job out of um, school, whatever that might look like, is not going to be the career that you retire with. So what we need to do is rather than go, well, put so much pressure on doing a law degree because you're going to be a lawyer, do a law degree. You're not going to retire as a lawyer. So then thinking about how we try and shift that mindset within the schooling system and within teachers, because I think that then translates very differently um, to the experience of students. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm starting to ramble now, but I think really it does come back to being more outward focused and thinking about what that end goal is that we're ultimately trying to work towards and, and coming back to that point as well around it's not just what we teach, it's how we teach. And so rather than just thinking about delivering a curriculum, how are you delivering that curriculum? How are you eliciting and building in opportunities to think about um, teamwork or whatever else it might be, um, rather than just churning out assignments with the view of getting a particular mark. And one of the, the uh, organisations or bodies that I love working with is Learning Creates Australia, um, which yeah. is very much around how do we try and reform the way in which we drive assessments within schools? Because again, there are people who, are, if we think about it from that citizen perspective, people who are making amazing contributions to their community, which might not be reflected in getting 99.9. Um, so revaluing and, and or rethinking how we assign value to different activities, achievements that, that individual students make and, and, and do. Ben, there's so much of what you're saying that is so well considered. You, you, you're far from rambling. You've got a mind that's able to put all of these pieces together and propose solutions. I think, I think you're right. I'm, I'm, as, you, as you were talking just then, I was going to give a shout out to 
Learning Creates Australia and also to, you know, people like Jojo McKechn over in New Zealand, to the guys at Edapt Education, to Martin and the team at, at, at in South Australia who are trying to refashion the whole South Australian curriculum around learner profiles or even better, and you mentioned this earlier, graduate outcomes, until we learn how to measure um, the indicators of the whole person that's emerging from the process, then we're still going to be stuck on a competitive Darwinian race to the top where some people have and some people have not. And it's all based on the premise around, well, and it's a false premise around competition for scarce university places. When those of us on the inside know that, well, the first round offer might say 99 point million to get in, but by the time you're down to the seventh or eighth or ninth round, you know, if you want to do law, you're going to do law. And if you want to do well in law, it doesn't really matter where you do well at law. What you need is a grounding in law, and then you need that sense of purpose that sits behind it. It's it's the same as everything else. I, I want to take a, I want to take a uh, I'm going to call it a left hook here rather than a right hook. When you talked earlier about coming to terms with that sense of your own sexuality when when you were young, and that's thank you for raising that. That's a very that's it's a conversation that needs to be had. Uh, Tim O'Connor, who's the headmaster at Auckland Grammar School and an educator who we really, really value, um, and he'll call a spade a bloody shovel um, very, very pointedly, says that no young man can grow into the wholeness of his masculinity until he has come to terms with his own sexuality. I think that so much of what we're seeing in schools today, and I know that um, uh, popular media tends to point a finger at uh, single-sex boys' schools around this, but from the from the research around it, it's in all schools. We've got boys trying to deal with the notion of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a good man, what it means to be a good person, what it means to be caught in the middle and coming up with sort of binary and, and non-fluid, you know, non-non-gendered non ways of looking at humanity. How can we help young men to think through that notion of their own sexuality as a positive and constructive? thing when there's so much going on in the world at the moment that tells them that being male is a bad thing another short easy question for you mate wow look uh, one of the things that, that i think i've been really surprised by is uh, so i left high school oh, maybe 15 years ago i think now that probably sounds about right um and when i left high school no one was out no one was gay um, it was definitely something that was repressed, um, uh, you know, and, and the way in which homosexuality was portrayed in popular media was highly caricatured and stereotyped. And it almost to an extent made you go, I don't want to be identified as that. And so um, it, it kind of only served to, um, you know, put you in the closet more if that's even a term. Whereas I think over that 15 years, things have changed significantly. What I've seen is um, a, a much broader representation of sexuality and gender identity within um, popular media, which has then translated to school kids today where I'm, you know, seeing and hearing of kids who are coming out in high school, some in primary school. Um, I mean, that that's just unfathomable to me, but I, I absolutely support it and, and champion that um, because that just wasn't my experience. So I think the the thing to remember in all of this is, and it doesn't answer your question, Phil, but um, while, um, you know, we can think about what can we do as schooling systems and whatnot to, to try and um, facilitate that kind of conversation that needs to be had, 
we need to remember that it's happening outside of the school. It's happening on TikTok. It's happening over virtual gaming. It's happening um, just in terms of all the different stimuli that they're seeing and experiencing and the conversations that they're having in the playground and, and outside of the classroom. Um, so I'm seeing this real organic shift. I think there's a mind shift um, that needs to kind of happen and be reset. I think that some of these stories that we're seeing from Florida and elsewhere overseas, um, where we kind of see some backward steps around not willing to engage in conversations around sexual mm. identity and non-nuclear families and everything in the classroom doesn't help. Um, but I think it's a mindset of acceptance, of tolerance, going back to your earlier comment around cultivating a community of belonging. It doesn't have to be belonging based on sexuality, but just belonging more broadly. Mm-hmm. And that then breeds a ground for people to be authentic and and have those conversations around whether it's masculinity, femininity, what it means to be a man or woman um, and be able to engage in that without judgment. But I think organically, um, irrespective of what we're seeing from educators, students are becoming much more tolerant and accepting um, of different sexual and gender identity. Okay. So, so much of the future of the world of work has got to be in this pocket of cultural and social awareness that we're talking about here. Uh, and, and developing uh, an authenticity around that particular space. We have witnessed across that 15 years, you know, so much of, of our society continue to be evolving and becoming, I would hope that we're not just tolerating, by the way, Ben, I hope that we are accepting. Uh, we've moved to from, the, from one space to the other um, as well. But we've seen an increasing shift of emphasis, particularly across many businesses and industries towards this kind of more authentic consciousness around corporate social responsibility and around inclusion. I mean, that's really become quite pronounced, hasn't it? You've probably illustrated why <laughs> a commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion is important in today's uh, world of work and society at large. Apart from making people feel that they are valued and significant, which has got to be a big component in all of this, why else do you think corporate Australia and the business world have embraced DEI in such a pronounced way? Yeah. Well, well, look, there is the, as you've just said, the real, um, I mean, not only the social component to it, but there's a, a very real cost component, which is if people don't feel like they're accepted belonging, then they quit and then turnover costs spike and then it hits the bottom line. So there is that. And if I'm being honest, when we saw the focus on DNI maybe about 10 years ago really come into the corporate space. It was very much driven by the corporate reality rather than um, the, the real social perspective, which is, is obviously the much more important and prevalent piece here. I think what we're seeing is um, a lot of it comes down to psychological safety. So um, there's the literature which says that High performance um, within workplaces is driven by two different metrics, high standards combined with um, high levels of psychological safety. Um, And psychological safety being all about people who can um, ask questions without fear of of being judged, who can put forward ideas without fear of consequence or retribution. Um, And that is that space for authenticity. So there is that piece around, you know, if we can develop psychological safety um, of which DE&I is a big part of that, then that helps us with get better outcomes as an organisation. And then there's the other piece, which I think, you know, as we've seen higher levels of diverse representation within the workforce, um, I mean, twofold. One, there were targets of people, um, you know, how we could try and increase the representation of different groups because 
Um, you know, if, if you're, you don't see something, then you don't work towards something necessarily. So um, that's given the ground to try and bring more diversity through the workforce. Um, but then also with that, we've then started to see people have experienced the benefits of what it's like to have a diverse workforce. So moving beyond just reporting on metrics and numbers of how many people of diverse cultural backgrounds we have in our organisation, well, actually, what's the value of having that? Um, and so if you think about it in the public sector, for example, government organisations, that's where it really, um, I, I see it be its most powerful because they need to be representative of the community they serve. So when they're thinking about designing policies, whether or not it's around the design of a particular um, train configuration or the platforms on a train uh, at a train station, whatever it might be, having someone with a diverse cultural background, an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander background, a person of diverse sexuality, they can help in the design that makes it much more inclusive, that makes it, uh, that, that brings about ideas, suggestions, innovations that otherwise wouldn't have been thought of because, mm. you know, like-minded people attract like-minded people and will come up with the same ideas. But when you get lots of different people with different backgrounds and experiences, there may be more discomfort, there may be more dissent, but you get a much more better and inclusive outcome at the end of it. And so just through seeing the sheer scale increase in organisations, people have then experienced the benefits of diversity. And so now we're actually not just trying to hit a number, but we're actually trying to really engage in how do we extract the value of that because we've seen and felt and experienced it. And, and there's so much in what you're just sharing there about then achieving a real um, equity of access to everything in life. I remember when we were developing a, an entirely um, brand new learning facility at my, my previous uh, school, we spent an enormous amount of time working with uh, the architects around DDA compliance, of course, you know, and making sure that, that we have a, a, a space that is catering for people of various abilities. That also included uh, people with uh, hearing impediments, uh, you know, because schools are the microcosm of society and have this kind of, you know, this broad spectrum. And I remember that we probably invested in around, mm, I'd say, 60% of the classrooms in this brand new 750 square three-storey building with a massive atrium in the middle of it uh, to have a particular technology in that room to amplify sound for people who were hearing impaired. We made sure that every sign, door, door sign, had an, uh, it actually had a, an aerial image of the local land in which that school stood on because there was a significant Indigenous uh, ceremony place called the Bolan Bolan Billabong. Uh, so that was in, included in that particular image. We had the longitude and latitude um, information of where we were and it also had every every room number also was repeated in in, in australian braille uh, alongside of that we had probably only around two or three students within the school that had a hearing impediment but when they walked into the space and they saw what was available to them one young man who actually played in the afl footy team he was six foot four year 12 boy just started crying and he actually just said that um this is making my learning accessible to me. You always consider all of us. And I didn't realise the significance of it until that moment because we were doing it not only for really impressive environmental graphics that are, you know, really good signage, helps empower lots of people, right? Uh, and here we were thinking, well, this is just a practical thing that we're going to do, you know, to, in, to support them in their learning and their growth. Didn't realise how significant it was going to be about their identity in all of that. And I feel that's that's the piece 
that when we go to schools and we talk to them about the possibility of this and its true value, you spoke earlier around the difference between productivity and significance. If we can continue to try and create schooling and learning communities that are about significance, uh, I think we're going to end up having a, a far more interesting society going forward and one that's a lot more productive. Mm. Um, thanks for listening to my TED talk just then. Um, no, no, I, I think just to add on to that, Adriana, like it comes back to what we were just talking about. Um, I guess throughout the whole podcast, you know, talking about, well, what are some really practical things that schools, teachers, whatever can, can do to prepare for the future of work and, and to, to try and drive those student outcomes? To me, it's not about necessarily having these overarching big transformational initiatives. It's things like that because, you know, the thing that I think is so powerful in that is you had three students, but the influence that it had across everyone that wasn't those three students, Mm -hmm. the way that it normalises um, uh, that sort of experience around and exposes those individuals that otherwise probably wouldn't have the students around Braille and then the line of questioning and inquisitiveness around people of hearing impairment and then, you know, just the, the kind of influence that it has. And so I think it's when you think about teachers who may feel disempowered, um, who might feel like they don't have agency because a lot of it does sit at a systems level, how can you try and drive through influence? I think that's the most important thing and where you're going to achieve most impact. It's the same as you know how we're seeing um, people put their gender pronouns on LinkedIn or in their email signatures. It's just around normalising it. Um, so embracing that inclusivity, that belonging, that um, sort of, uh, a way in which we can influence um, curiosity, I think that is really powerful and where teachers can play a really significant role. The impact of little tiny decisions like that, I, I feel have huge ripple effects, uh, as you've just illustrated. My final question to you before I hand it over to Phil, I know he wants to ask a couple of quick things before we wrap this up, which has been a, a really enlightening conversation. And um, so my question is this, uh, I, I was recently uh, having a look at the work of the UK think tank Autonomy. Um, you may be familiar with them. Earlier this year in, in January, they, they started working with over 30 British companies in, in this kind of six-month pilot program for a four-day working week. They've also put out a paper in relation to that being adopted in schools, although I feel that their paper in relation to the school one is, is a little still too much about the productivity and don't, don't really understand the, the nuance or the subtlety that's required within a, in a, such a people-orientated uh, profession. But this pilot will, will see no loss in pay for employees working that one fewer day of week. Why are such pilots important for us to reimagine how we can better learn, live, lead and work? Yeah. So, I mean, if we think about the four-day work week, we need to remember that you know, going back a couple of hundred years ago, there was a seven day work week, then there was a six day, and then there was a, f- a five day. Um, and uh, one of the big drivers for moving to a five day work week was to respect the Jewish Sabbath um, within factory workers. So these things have a catalyst for change. And just because it's been this way for our lifetime doesn't mean it needs to always remain that way. Um, so, as you said, a lot of organizations, economies are looking at a four day work week. Um, in Australia, the ACT Legislative Assembly is currently doing an inquiry into the four-day work week for the ACT. Um, and it, the research shows that because we're working longer and longer hours, because technology means that we're always switched on, mm-hmm. we're essentially doing those hours anyway, but there is a productivity mark where you then start to fall off a cliff because you're working too many hours. 
So that getting the balance right between driving work versus then having respite over a one, two, three day weekend to then come back to work and over time um, productivity or performance that the research is showing um, tends to peak with a four day rather than a five day work week. So um, to that point, it's around how do you do five days of work in four? A lot of people are already doing that, but then giving more recovery time to then be able to, to um, have, going back to our point, um, hobbies, more time in the community, developing well-rounded citizens, come back and, and take the work week on again and, and drive that productivity. So that's kind of what's happening, I guess, in the workspace. Um, there are then questions around, well, do we take that into schools? Because particularly if parents are doing a four-day work week um, and, and we think about how the school week mirrors the working week at the moment, do we then try and mirror them into a four-day schooling week or is that fifth-day homeschooling through um, technology, VC, et cetera? So um, I think that's a really interesting one to unpack. I think the pilots are super important because, again, we want to drive a culture and a society of curiosity and inquisition where we say just because it's always been done this way, it doesn't mean that it should. And pilots give us an evidence base to actually make some of those determinations to say we did a pilot, it worked, it didn't work, therefore we can make an informed decision about it. Um, one of the things that's kind of a tangent but I think is really interesting and I'd like to see um, spoken about more is at the moment in the world of work, we're talking about hybrid working as the dominant topic, you know, how we split the working week between the home and the office. And a lot of office workers want to work from home more than they want to be in the office. Um, so on average, people want to work around 3.4 days, quite specific, 3.4 days a week at home, 1.6 days a week in the office. So if I think about, and that's coming off the back of COVID-19, right, where people worked from home because they were forced to, but they actually liked it and therefore want to sustain it. Um, and the productivity measures match. I'd like to have more of a conversation around, well, if that's happening in the world of work, why aren't we questioning more around what that looks like in schools? So schools went to fully um, virtual homeschooling. And I'm not advocating for that by any means because I'm not a parent and therefore, um, you know, don't know the pain that many parents went through. But why aren't we questioning five days a week in a classroom? Why aren't we thinking about blended or hybrid learning um, and, and trying to think a little bit differently around that? Yeah, I, I think yeah that's a very, very good question, Matt. Yeah, the interesting thing that? though, Ben, is um, I know Phil's going to jump in here. The reality is there are schools already doing this. Right. There, there, there are schools that are, uh, have realised that growing out of the pandemic, there was much to be gained from uh, the, the integration of an on-campus delivery model and an online delivery model. And you can call it hybrid, you can call it whatever you want, but those schools uh, are at the head of the curve in this space because they have seen that it caters for a greater cross-section of their students uh, in, in a really profound way. And that's why they are adopting some type of model that, that attends to that because there's opportunity for synchronous and then asynchronous learning to goes back to your point about self-determination earlier. Sorry, Phil, over to you, sir. No, no, no. So I was, I was just going to, I was going to say, it's, you know, it's that issue of why aren't they thinking? And that's because systems don't think systems, you know, well, people, I, I think people think, well, yeah, people think, but systems don't think. And once you build a system and it's a system that's built on sameness and regularity and smoothness and, creating efficiencies and regularity and norms and things like that. It's very, we all know it's very difficult to break it. That's why we need game changes, don't we, to help people think <laughs> through that and around that. I'm going to jump in and ask you one last question, Ben. We could, I have a feeling we could talk for a very, very long time. Um, uh, one last question. A lot of what we're talking about here 
requires us to imagine a world which is much more personalised. The technologies of our world already do this. It's education's turn to think about how to do this more effectively. We have to accept that in doing this, we're going to have to restructure the system and we're going to have to restructure the system of work for each person within that because we can't keep doing the same or trying to do the same. It just it doesn't work. You know, it's, this is like Charlie Chaplin in modern times getting caught between the cogs of the wheels. As we drive towards a more personalised approach to learning, to, to preparing people to be future ready and future fit, what's your personal sense of the future? How do you see, see yourself evolving as a person? How do I see myself evolving as a person? How philosophical to, to finish our, our conversation. <laughs> um, look, I've always been someone who has been driven by intellectual curiosity. So the career choices I've made, um, whether or not I take on a, a new role at, at work or in a different organisation, whatever it might be, is always driven by that intellectual curiosity. So I'm going to keep um, following um, things that interest me. I'm going to continue to challenge myself and to learn. And part of that is um, through listening to podcasts. And so I think podcasts like yours are, are incredible for broadening people's perspectives um, because I think we need to do more and more of that. I like to surround myself with people who have different perspectives and views and upbringings and everything to myself um, because, again, it's not just about diversity in a workplace. I love diversity in my own social network um, for, for what that does for me as an individual. And I actually, I'm not someone who has a five-year plan. I'm not someone who has a two-year plan. Um, and I don't advocate that people should because I feel like when we put structure and we try and set a path, and I learned this going back to that law uh, example, when we have a very linear path, we say no to opportunities because we're so fixated on that path. So for me, it's very much around just doing what makes me happy, chasing that next opportunity, seeing a career as a stepping stone. Uh, each job is a stepping stone to the next. There's no ultimate goal that you should or will achieve because you know students these days are going to be working till they're well into their 70s. Um, so really just chasing those things that stimulate you, make you curious um, and don't have a fixated plan because you will say no to opportunities, be open to what's out there. Maybe then the goal is not about the doing or even the knowing or it's, it's about the being and the becoming. Maybe that's, that's what the pathway to excellence is at the end of the day for, for all of us. Ben Hamer, thank you so much for coming on Game Changers today. It's been a fabulous conversation. You've been a real sport in allowing us to peer into your life, but also to use that as an exemplar for other game changers so that they can start to think through how to solve some of the problems we have in our world of education to help our students to be future fit and future ready. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And can you share with our audience really quickly, where can they get uh, a copy of the kick-ass career, how to succeed in the future of work now? Uh, well, in all your favourite bookstores, uh, it's online. So um, whether it's Amazon, Booktopia, wherever, um, if you just Google the kick-ass career, um, you should be able to find it pretty easily. Yes, and for those, on, for those on Instagram, you just look up kick-ass career there and you'll find it. I've just followed it. and, and um, Beauty. Thanks, Ben. Good day. Thanks, guys. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.